ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. G'day, Angus Furley here. Coming up on the Country Hour, you'll get an update on that Roundup class action and hear what it could mean for the future of glyphosate. And more on the impacts of the torrential rain, you'll hear from grape growers and an apiarist who've been hit hard by the wet weather. You'll also hear from a gun Kiwi shearer who's smashed a world record by shearing 465 ewes in a day. You can get in touch. The text line is 0467 842 722 or give me a call on 1300 594 Well, glyphosate is the most used herbicide in the world and in Australia. It's at the forefront of what could be a landmark trial. Lucy Cooper has this report. On Monday the 4th of September, a landmark trial begun in Australia. The case, a class action involving more than 800 Australians who've been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. They allege their cancer is linked to their exposure to Roundup, a broad-spectrum glyphosate-based herbicide between July 1976 and July 2022. So what's the aim of the trial? To determine if glyphosate, the key ingredient in Roundup, is carcinogenic to humans and causes non-Hodgkin lymphoma. If that is accepted by the court, the trial will then seek to determine whether the manufacturer, Monsanto, and its Australian division, Huntsman Chemical Company, were negligent for the risks posed by its products. If the applicants are successful, the trial could have significant regulatory implications in Australia. Maurice Blackburn is running the class action. Here's one of their lead lawyers, Andrew Watson, to explain the intention of the trial. Well, in 2015, the International Agency for the Research on Cancer um, declared that glyphosate, which is the active ingredient of the uh, Roundup product uh, that's sold by Monsanto, was a probable human carcinogen. Uh, Since that time, Monsanto's behaved uh, like uh, many multinationals who hear uh, evidence uh, that they don't uh, like and that impacts on their profit, and and it's engaged effectively in a campaign of trying to uh, uh, create confusion about the science and uh, a campaign with regulators and others. Uh, But... Uh, What that led to is us initiating this proceeding some years ago uh, in order to obtain compensation for those people who had developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, as a result of their exposure to Roundup. Roundup, the glyphosate product in question, continues to be sold in Australia. You could purchase it today at your local hardware store if you wanted to. And Monsanto's parent company, Bayer, insists Roundup is safe. So why is glyphosate important? Why is it used and what on? Andrew Wiedemann, a Victorian farmer and research and development spokesperson with Grain Producers Australia, says the broad-spectrum weed killer has transformed grain growing in Australia and around the world 
providing weed control without the need to cultivate and eliminating the horrid dust storms of the early 1980s. When it comes to glyphosate, obviously that's probably the world's choice in terms of weed control. You cast your mind back in 82, but uh, I first came home on the farm uh, in that era and the dust storms that were around then and you look at the way agriculture is today uh, and the way that's transformed and the way that we're growing, the amount of grain that we're growing, it's all on the back essentially of the use of glyphosate. Glyphosate is most commonly used in no-till or minimum tillage systems. Tillage controls weed growth by ploughing and cultivating, but because glyphosate is a broad-spectrum weed killer, it means farmers aren't required to till. So if glyphosate was to be banned in Australia, what would that actually mean? For backyard gardeners, it means no more quick fix for weeds, but what about those with much bigger backyards? farmers. All the benefits from no-till farming will lose those because there is no alternative to glyphosate. I know that we've got, obviously we've got other products on the market that we have used in the past and continue to use, but some of those are already banned. For example, paraquat has already been banned in most jurisdictions around the world, but we still have it. But none of those alternatives will replace glyphosate as it is. So it is going to be having a big impact on our farming system, especially on no-till farming. And we should be thinking about what can we do to replace glyphosate in case it happens. It's not a panic situation, but it's something that we should be thinking about, at least in the short to medium term. That's Victorian-based crop scientist and consultant Harm Van Rees. Some producers say they're keen to move away from the synthetic pesticides. Tammy Jonas is a livestock producer and butcher and the president of the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance. Coming from a food sovereignty and an agroecology perspective, we sort of reckon there needs to be a transition to a totally different way of farming. I do think there's a responsibility on all of us, but in particular governments, to show some leadership in how to transition farms to more biodiverse production methods using integrated pest management. You know, there are lots of tools in the organic farmers toolbox as well, even though some of those may be imperfect. You have broadacre organic farmers not using glyphosate. So we know it can be done. And I would say that we need to be making that transition rather rapidly. The class action represents over 800 Australians who believe glyphosate causes them or their loved ones non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Many more people across the country believe this as well. Matt Irison, a grazier near Hay in New South Wales, is one such person. So we had two units going, you know, day after day for months, uh, into years, you know, tidying up country. And um, my cousin used to call my brother and I the, the chemical brothers because we were using it so often. So that was a bit of a joke around town. He still uses Roundup when required always trying to follow instructions. I did have uh, disposable overalls, um, gloves and a respirator at times. But then I, I sort of found that if you had a breeze running away from you, try and spray with and let the, the spray go the other way. And it was just, if you're out there in 40 degree heat, it, it became a bit unbearable wearing a respirator. I know uh, Monsanto says that Roundup is safe, uh, but I've seen a few issues in our in our family and in the district that makes me wonder a little bit. My brother-in-law passed away in 2015 from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is the one the court case they're presiding over at the moment. He sort of yeah, had bone marrow transplants and, and um, with his brother, 
and unfortunately uh, passed away after about 12 years with the disease. Mr Arison has developed an immune disorder and has begun to wonder if there is a link to his ongoing use of Roundup. It's called ITP, first words idiopathic, which means um, they don't know the cause of it. But I will say one thing, when I went to the doctor in Hay, he said, have you been working with organophosphates and organochlorides, which are chemicals, as you know, and uh, sort of makes me wonder how I developed ITP. I've still got it now. So now we have a strong picture of the role of glyphosate and who uses it and potential impacts if it were to be banned. So let's take our minds back to the nine-week trial, which sought to determine if glyphosate, the key ingredient in Roundup, is carcinogenic to humans and therefore causes non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Class action lead lawyer Andrew Watson said he is confident they'll be able to persuade the judge and achieve a positive outcome for all 800 Aussies in the class action. Not everyone that's exposed to carcinogens gets cancer. Not everyone who smokes a cigarette gets lung cancer. But that does not mean that there's not a proven association between smoking and lung cancer. And in the same way, uh, the evidence we say will establish that Roundup and its active ingredient glyphosate do cause non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. That report from Lucy Cooper and the class action court case will return for final admissions in coming weeks and it's unclear when a decision will be made. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Grape growers in the Swan Hill region say they're struggling to access their vines and spray their crops for diseases after the recent severe rain. Storms dropped up to 100 millimetres on some local districts on Sunday and Monday, causing vineyards and stone fruit orchards to be inundated. Table grape grower Joey Procolo says the ground is still wet and muddy. Here in Warrenin, we uh, measured around 100 mil. Uh, Some people a little less, but some people have claimed up to 120. What sort of impact did that have on your crops and on the trees and vines that you have here? So table grapes um, right now for me is, uh, is basically meant more spraying, um, petritus, mealy bug, powdery mildew, all the diseases you can think of. It, you know, we just come off a rain um, less than two weeks ago, quite a big rain as well, which obviously meant spraying and what have you. But, you know, it's uh, the pressures of disease on this rain is actually more so now um, coming up to our harvest as soon as we get a chance to um, hop on our tractors to spray, um, we'll be in there trying to um, do all we can to, to stop um, you know, the, these uh, diseases and petritus that uh, are, are out there right now, which um, unfortunately we can't get in and do anything about it at the moment. Looks like it's still very wet, so I imagine if you tried to get in and spray, you, you might get bogged. Yeah, look, and that's what we faced back in um, October, November last year. Um, I know I got caught at least 11 times. I had neighbours pulling me out and we were all helping each other, trying to get in as quick as we could. Um, this time round's probably no different, but we just got no choice but to sit it out. Um, we were lucky. We sprayed heavily just beforehand. Um, but, um, you know, walking around the farm, I, I, I can see botrytis um, setting in in certain berries. Uh, we were unlucky to get hit with a bit of hail. Um, and so when you got these uh, conditions with high humidity... Um, you're losing 
you're losing a you know you're losing the battle and that's um that's what i see right now so it'll be probably a week before i can get in and there's nothing i can do about it so um you know three weeks from harvest um and reports of farmers uh you know with uh, with petrita setting in uh doesn't make it uh, any easier just to sit and wait can you tell me a little bit more about botrytis? What sort of an impact does that have? So for us, um, botrytis um, is a, it, it's a, it's something that can get into your, your bunch. Um, it, it starts to you know, grow spores and rot, uh, rot berries. And uh, the storage uh, capabilities of, of the table grapes this year will be, will be quite low. Um, so we'll find that perhaps they won't uh, hold as well as they should. Um, and that's probably the biggest dramas that we're going to face is, is that, um, you know, we, we'll just have to see, um, time will tell, I guess, but, um, yeah, maybe they won't look as fresh and vibrant as they could have been. Um, humidity has caused major issues. Um, even with vine covers on, um, humidity has caused major dramas. Um, even with people who have already covered their, their vines currently, um, with softening, um, and, uh, and basically bunches just um, going soft completely. Um, and so what are the next couple of days going to look like for you? Is, is it waiting around to get in there and spray or what can you is, do? It's absolute the waiting game. Um, and the, the quicker I can get in, um, the better it is. Um, and I'm sure we're all in the same boat, but you know, I might even, you know, attempt to, you know, half fill the spray vat, uh, to have less weight so I can get into areas. Um, it is a waiting game. There's nothing I can do. That was table grape grower Joey Procolo speaking with Francesco Salvo. And staying on grapes, the torrential rains have caused problems for one of the state's oldest vineyards, Tabilk Estate, which borders the Golden River between Seymour and Agambi. But General Manager Joe Nash says the historic vines and buildings have come through the rain better than previous floods. It's interesting. I mean, we had the big floods back in October 2022 when we were told they were the one in the 100-year floods. And the recent rain events that we've seen over the past few weeks have certainly increased the water level both here on the estate and right beside us in the Goulburn River. So not too sure about the one in 100-year flood theory anymore because it seems we, we keep getting a lot of moisture around the place. Definitely the water that we've seen over the past of weeks isn't as intense we saw back in October 2022 in fact nothing nothing like it and also one of the other biggest I guess mitigating factors in 2022 was the fact that Eildon was filling up and they had to release quite a bit of water down the Goulburn River so then it just increased the water levels around here in general which hasn't occurred this time so we're lucky enough that the water has stayed out of our historic buildings uh, this time so our 1860 cellar last time had water in it. Our 1875 cellar had water in it to, you know, a depth of gumboot deep is what I like to say. And this year we're fortunate enough that the water's actually stayed away from there. It's it's certainly penetrated our vineyards. In fact, our Shiraz vines, which were planted in the 1860, that block's quite wet at the moment. In fact, the vines are all have wet feet out there and also the 1927 vines Marsan, which is another one of our oldest vineyards. Those vines are underwater or wet feet at the moment as well. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a challenging time here in, in central Victoria in the wine industry, that's for sure. Do you know at this stage if that water is causing any issues for the grapes or is it a bit early to tell? It's it's a bit – I mean, we can't actually get onto the vineyard at the moment. So there's two points of access into our old to vineyards, um, both of which are currently blocked off with water over the roads. Um, we're hopeful that either tomorrow or Friday we'll be able to get out and have a look and see what's going on. I think from experience, it's not the 
the water itself that causes the damage, um, especially this year because it's not deep enough, but it's the disease pressure that the, the humidity and, and the laying areas of water brings with it that mm. causes the issues in the, in the vines and the grapes and the berries themselves. So, and we're, you know, we're in January, we'll be looking to pick hopefully in about six to eight weeks' time or get started at least or get, get into it. And, you know, there's only so much time between spraying and picking that you can have. You have to have withhold holding periods. So periods of time where we have to ensure that the residual spray doesn't carry through to the wine and into the bottle. So we're getting into that, you know, what I call the danger zone, if you like. Um, but, you know, we're doing the best we can and hopefully we can get out there in the next couple of days and just really see what's going on and, and make some judgment calls about what the season's going to bring for us. Yeah. Has there been any pest pressure over the past couple of months from this increased sort of humidity and dampness? Yeah, absolutely. And and especially because we saw the increased pressure in 2023, which is a result of the 2022 floods. So it's it's like there's high loads of high levels of spores. So some of the, the mildews that we see, I mean, they carry, you know, they carry right through the seasons and they go into a dormancy. And then as soon as the conditions come become favourable for them, they pop their head out again and off we go. So we've certainly seen that already. And this is just going to increase that pressure that we already were facing. That was Tabilka State General Manager Joe Nash speaking with Fiona Broom. On the text line, Frank from Ballarat has been in touch on our update on the Roundup class action. Frank says people using Roundup should be using common safety clothing, such as gloves, masks, and it should be treated like any other poison. He says even spider and fly spray is also a dangerous insecticide. 0467 842 the text line. Stay on the rain now because a Bendigo apiarist is cleaning up 144 drowned hives after being hit by that record-breaking rain. Richard Collins manages about 2,000 hives with his father and two brothers and says the rain has done significant damage. So unfortunately 144 are pretty much toast now. Unfortunately they're upside down and the lower part of the land that they were on, thankfully... There's another load there that was 144 hives and they were on higher ground and haven't been affected as we're aware of yet. We still have to go through them. Now the water's dropping down. Um, well, has dropped down, but there's still water going over the track, so access is still limited, unfortunately. And you told me just yesterday that you were moving or planning to move more of your hives. So where are you at with that? Yeah, yeah. So we're moving hives currently around well, pretty much Victoria, uh, chasing a different nectar flow and just making sure we're away from the rivers at the moment, given that it's a lot wetter than, you know, the dry, hot summer that we were going to get. Mm-hmm. And so for people who don't really know what what effect floods can have on honey producers like yourself, what does the cleanup actually look like? It's going to be a mess. We have to look at flipping the hives back over. All the honey on them is no longer usable because of the floodwaters. You don't know what's in it. Um, the hives are now pretty much gone. There's not going to be any bees or a queen or brood left. Uh, the maggots and grubs will start, and it's just going to be a dirty, stinky clean-up, really. Um, and then all we can really utilise is the pallets, lids, bottoms and boxes. All the frames, yeah, it's not going to be any good to us now. And all the honey, and yeah, it's just sad for the bees. They're just all dead now. It's pretty much suffocation with the the entrance being at the bottom of the hive and once floodwaters come up, they, you know, stress, heat up and pretty much just suffocate and kill themselves. And in terms of being a, a honey producer, do you have, you know, an estimated dollar value for, for how much you, you've lost because of this flood event? Oh, very hard to tell given that, 
you know, you've got the time in making the nukes themselves and then you've, you've got the loss of honey production, which can vary, especially with the rain that we've got at the moment. Um, and then pollination jobs for the season to come is, um, it, it's definitely up there now, unfortunately. Besides moving the remaining hives, what other measures are you taking in the aftermath, I guess? Um, pretty much don't listen to the Bureau. Um, yeah, no, it was just unpredicted. Like they were estimating 10 to 20 mil sort of thing. And I think it changed to 10 to 30 or 20 to 40. And when you're getting close to 100 mil, it's, it's a big difference. And yeah, I guess we weren't prepared for a weather event like that and for the Campaspita floods. Um, that much, thankfully, we didn't have more bees. We've got more sites along there. Thankfully, we didn't have any more bees along the river line because uh, the red gum's flowering there at the moment. Um, so it, it's not an easy one to, to deal with, I guess. And, um, Richard, what are you hearing from other apiarists um, and, I guess, the, the broader community more more generally? But, um, yeah, what are you hearing from other apiarists in your area? Not a whole lot, actually. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a lot of community support once the sort of photos and videos went up on social media um, and we've had people offering to help us, which is amazing. Um, it's probably the support that people are offering us is, you know, they'll come and give us a hand for clean-up. We do appreciate it. We, we don't need it. Um, but it's just good to know that the community is there and even the other beekeepers are offering their time to help us recover. I had to deal with it last year and I know how shit it is. It's, it's all brand new gear. The um, splits that were done start of the season and they've turned into amazing hives and they had a box of honey on them so it's just a huge loss and it just puts you you know two steps forward five steps back kind of thing that was bendigo honey producer richard collins speaking with rural reporter faith tabaluyan about those torrential rains and barry from kyabram on the text line with his rainfall figure for the week 47 mils get in touch 0467 842 Let's talk land markets now because a veteran livestock agent says he's never seen markets fall so fast and rise so sharply in such a narrow window. The trade lamb indicator has risen 70% since Christmas from 460 cents a kilo carcass weight to 780 cents, bringing it back to those levels of 12 months ago. Andrew McElree from DMD Agents in Nil says it's been a roller coaster ride. Yeah, well, it's been a pretty, it was a pretty dramatic fall back uh, in 23. I've never seen it probably go down so quickly, but by the same token, I've never seen it probably rise so quickly. So there was a little bit of a an improvement in prices just prior to Christmas, the last sort of market or two. But uh, since we've come back, it's, um, I went to the first market in Hamilton to try and buy a few stores and the, the rise was very, very dramatic. You know, as you said, it's probably um, two bucks a kilo sort of thing. So uh, maybe more in places on some types. So, yeah, it's incredible. Amazing. Mm. And what is that kind of change in price? How is that affecting the decisions people are making? Well, it, it certainly it gives people a bit more confidence going forward. And I'm not too sure, you know, where it's going to finish up a little bit later. But um, you know, we were buying store lambs for 60 to a bit over $80 prior to Christmas. Now, if you want to go down and buy stores, I listened to the Wagga report yesterday. There, the bottom end's about 80 and the top end, I think, is up into the 120s or 30s or even 140s. So, obviously, people have got a bit of confidence. So, uh, they're paying more for the lambs, there's no doubt about it. 
Mm. Is there a bit of an Australia Day bump going on? Is that a real phenomenon? Um, look, I think it maybe is. I don't know just, um, you know, how great it is, but I think it's a bit deeper than that. I think it's, you know, you're talking about your exporters, your supermarkets, um, your local processes, they're all in the market and they're all um, they're all chasing lambs at the minute. So it's uh, it's pretty exciting, to be quite honest, yeah. Mm. And just quickly, wiener sales, what's happening there? Wiener sales, they've opened pretty strong. They tell me they're buying them in a very tight range, uh, price range, somewhere around 300 to about 340 or 50. And that seems to have carried along all through the northeast sales and the western district sales, even the southeast South Australia sales that I've seen. So some of them been going up north where they've had the rain, so that's good. But I think also a lot of the, um, well, some of the wind have certainly been staying local in Victoria. So it's uh, it's not as good as it was uh, a little while ago, but it's better than it was looking prior to Christmas, no doubt. Yeah. All right. I wanted to ask you about your predictions for 2024. Got anything just very quickly, anything we could expect the like, next couple of weeks? Uh, look, I think it'll hold. I think it'll hold while the lamp supplies before they come off stubbles. In a big way, I don't know whether that'll actually reduce the price, but I think it'll be solid for a little while. I do. Andrew McElroy from DMD, DMD Agents in Nil speaking with Elsie Kennedy. 12.30 now, so let's head to today's rural news with Emma Field. G'day, Angus. Let's start rural news by heading to Chachura, which will kick off the 35th year of International Dairy Week this weekend. The week will feature junior and senior judging events, a large dairy sale on Wednesday night, and several breed competitions, plus the big gong of Supreme Interbred Champion awarded at the end of the week. Founder of the dairy event, Brian Leslie, will be among the judges and says genetics have played a huge part in improving efficiency of the industry and these will be on display over the week. The last 10 years, we've seen enormous gains in the quality and production and efficiency of dairy cattle and it's due to the genetics. Uh, Nowadays with genomics, um, we can fast track things and, and I think the improvement in in dairy cattle performance and longevity and health traits has been outstanding and uh, you know the AI companies around the world are doing a wonderful job finding the best bulls identifying them and making them available so with great management and great genetics it's a, it's a wonderful combination to better your herd New South Wales Farmers President Xavier Martin is calling for an ACCC inquiry into supermarket pricing. He says farmers are reporting significant abuses of power by the major supermarket chains and some are being played below cost of production. The federal government has appointed former Labor Minister Craig Emerson to examine the Voluntary Food and Grocery Code of Conduct, which has been in place since 2015 and was up for review this year. But Mr Martin says the government needs to take action and put in place a mandatory code. It's part of a quarter of a century now, 25 years since some of these voluntary codes were put in. They haven't been working then, they weren't working subsequently and they're still not working now. So that's why we need an ACCC inquiry to actually get the facts on the table. I think once the pricing is is, uh, compelled to be tabled, both at retail and wholesale and all the elements of the supply chain in between, it'll become clear just where the gouging is going on. 
And still in New South Wales, despite recent rain in some regions, more than half of the state remains in drought. The New South Wales DPI combined drought indicator shows 63 of the state is in one of the three drought categories at the end of December. DPI spokesman Anthony Clark says while some parts of the state received good rain at the end of last year, it's a mixed picture. There are parts of New South Wales which missed out, parts of regions which missed out, We've been seeing a lot of farm-to-farm variability out in western New South Wales, so still a complex environment out there. Yeah, we're still seeing quite concerning um, stress on pastures. Uh, We're seeing high temperatures. We're getting quite high evaporation rates in areas like the northern Hunter, uh, northwest Hunter, uh, up into the Tablelands, and, and patches down, particularly in the central west and far west of New South Wales. To the top end now, where the Northern Territory Government is reforming biosecurity and trespass laws. Some of the proposed changes involve the introduction of penalties for those who breach a property's biosecurity plan and giving police officers the same powers as a livestock inspector in the event of an emergency animal disease control program. NT's Chief Vet Rob Williams says they updated the legislative powers after a number of biosecurity threats such as foot and mouth disease. The idea is that the biosecurity management plans do not stop people who have a statutory right to enter a property or are invited onto the property, but what they require is some basic measures that um, that people should follow. So that that's sort of a principle of like come clean, go clean. So if you enter a property, uh, you should um, you know make every effort to obviously uh, have clean vehicles, uh, clean boots, particularly if you're coming into contact with livestock. And finally, Angus, the debate about which sheepdog breed is best will start with a new season of Muster Dogs starting this weekend on ABC TV. This year, it features Border Collie pups. Last season, we watched Kelpies being trained to herd livestock. New South Wales New England Kelpie breeder and working dog trainer Peter Hogan gives us his thoughts. My personal thoughts are they may not mature as quickly as the Kelpies, just a little bit I've had to do with the both breeds of dogs. But, gee, there's never been a good dog of that colour, and I think they'll be fine. They'll be really good, and I think it's only great that people get to look at both breeds. And You're probably either a Ford person or a Holden person, and that's pretty much the same with the dogs. And as you know, Angus, I'm on Team Border Collie, but I bet our audience has plenty of views on this topic. And that wraps up Rural News for this week. Yeah, hard to go past the Kelpie, though. Thanks for that, Emma. Emma Field there with Rural News. Let's go to the Bureau now. Stephanie Miles from the Bureau is on the line. Afternoon, Stephanie. How's it going, Angus? Yeah, well, I'm just trying to get my head around whether there's any rain coming or not next week, Stephanie, but we can get to that. We better talk about what's happening weather-wise today first. Yeah, absolutely. Well, today, I mean, I think it looks like it's a gorgeous day out the moment if you like the sunshine and the heat. Uh, most of the state has got pretty clear skies at the moment. We've got some cloud developing over our eastern ranges and central ranges, but we do have a bit of a trough extending over the central part of the state. And we're expecting that to kind of drive some isolated thunderstorms, or sorry, showers and thunderstorms, mostly in our north, central and eastern parts of the state today. However, there is a risk of them being a little bit severe with some heavy rainfall, but we're not really expecting them to be widespread over an area or because of that more hit and miss, um, not leading to any more increases in riverine uh, flooding or anything like that. So some isolated thunderstorms potentially in our north and eastern parts this afternoon. 
Now into the weekend we do have a bit of a ridge that's building over the state so a little bit more settled. We've got some cloudy conditions with perhaps a little isolated action shower activity on and south of the ranges on both Saturday and Sunday. A bit cooler as well, probably around the low to mid-20s in the temperatures. But the north of the state is remaining quite clear with some warm temperatures continuing over the weekend. We do have a couple of isolated thunderstorm uh, risks continuing the very far north of the state too on Saturday, Sunday too. So a little bit more settled over the last, or sorry, over the next few days. That kind of continues into Monday as well. We've got some warm temperatures, high 20s to early 30s around the state and a mostly cloudy day south and sunny in the north but yeah look Angus from today until Monday I guess it's mainly settled weather if you can call it that but yeah considering what we've got coming up on Tuesday I'll call it mainly settled weather. (laughs) So what is coming up Tuesday? Well, so yesterday we were talking about how uncertain we were of what was actually happening but it seems like we have a little bit more of a consistent story at this stage. I'm absolutely certain the story will continue to change from here on out. But look, from Tuesday onwards, it seems like we do have a bit of a trough that's building over the central parts of the country and extending into the very far western parts of our state. Uh, By Tuesday afternoon, it seems as though that trough will start to deepen. We'll have a bit of a cold front move into the southwest parts of the state. It's going to bring some more scattered to widespread shower activity in the west parts and perhaps some thunderstorms as well. Now into Tuesday night into Wednesday is when we start to get a little bit more uncertain. So it will start to move eastwards over the state overnight Tuesday but by Wednesday unfortunately our uh, you know, uncertainty really grows and the movement of that trough throughout the central and eastern parts of the state on Wednesday is really uncertain. It's either going to move through and be clear by Wednesday night or stick around till Thursday. So It's very much a wash of space from Wednesday, but I think, Angus, I'm confident that from Tuesday onwards you'll see some rain really pop up in the forecasts from then onwards. Fair enough, but at this stage, can you indulge me as to whether if 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 it did stick around, what sort of possible rain we might expect? Yeah, I can definitely indulge you in some figures. I'm certain that they won't stay the same, but I think for Tuesday for now, you expect anywhere between the 10 to 20 millimetres in the western parts of the state and probably a similar amount uh, in the uh, central and eastern parts as the front moves through. But yeah, I'm, I'm really uncertain that if it moves slower, we could get some really high rainfall totals. There's also the additional risk that it seems as though it's really just starting to tap into some moisture that's coming from the northern parts of the country as well. So by Wednesday, you know, those rainfall totals could jump up, it could move quickly and they could fall. So I think definitely keep an eye on the rainfall forecast for now, Angus. And I did have last night a farmer text me, uh, well, actually with a picture of a a can of beer, I think it was, next to a an, an anthill where the ants had been busily building up their ant nest. So maybe the ants know that rain's coming. I've heard this theory before as well, actually. Someone said that to me. If the ants are out, that means there's rainfall coming. We will try and get some more clarity next week. Thanks, Stephanie. <laughs> Thanks, Angus. Enjoy your day. You too. Stephanie Miles there, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Farmers in northern Victoria say their community has been misled by a mining company about the size of a planned mine. Members of the community group Mine Free Mallee Farms say they were combing through the environmental effects statement for mining company BHM's proposed Goshen Mineral Sands Mine this month when they noticed the mining strategy in the EES didn't match information given to investors by VHM in a briefing in September. They say if the information given in that briefing is accurate, 
Up to 100 farming families could be affected by the mine, rather than just 20. In December, mining company VHM announced it was moving forward with a proposal to mine for mineral sands south of Swan Hill on the Murray River. What is now fertile cropping country was once an ancient inland sea that VHM says is rich in rutile, zirconium and rare earth elements that can be used in the production of electric cars and wind turbines. In its environmental effects statement, VHM proposed mining two areas of land, which it called Area 1 and Area 3, near the township of Lalbert. Farmers whose properties adjoin those proposed mine sites have until the 17th of January to assess the 3,200-page environmental effects statement and provide a response. Some of the affected farmers have formed a group they're calling Mine Free Mallee Farms. And during its research, the group says it's come across a statement VHM made to investors on September 18 last year, in which the company says it's discovered an additional 11.5 million tonnes of probable ore reserve at a new location, which it's calling Area 4. That area has not been included in the EES for the Goshen mine. Farmer Craig Kennedy says for the process to be fair, VHM needs to be transparent with the community about its plans. We know that the what the marketing material for VHM is saying isn't covered by the EES, and um, we feel that VHM are basically trying to get um, their mining licence and then that's, yeah, the, the EES is covering the tip of the iceberg and once they get the mining licence, anyone within the district yeah, is vulnerable to mine expansion. And so what does it mean for your ability to respond to that EES if the detail around what they're proposing in their marketing material isn't in there? I guess that they're limiting the amount of people affected by their um, in the EES. It looks like a relatively um, a smaller footprint than than what the potential is, and um, I think it just needs to be um, said for what it for what it is and and what the potential of the the mine is. And so, how many people would likely be affected by the version that's in the EES compared to? the expanded version that they're proposing in the marketing material? I guess it's it's a bit unknown, but I'd say um, you're talking 10 to 20 farming families in the EES, whereas you're talking could be up to 100 or so yeah, in the marketing material. They've got, they've got potential sites scattered from uh, Quambatook to west of Swan Hill um, to Lake Boga. Um, and yeah, anyone within that zone basically could could be vulnerable. And so, what what is Mine Free Mallee Farmers doing at this stage? Are you trying to reach out to those farmers who are in that expanded area now? We're just trying to inform um, and and make people aware that that the the scope of the mine may not be what the EES is outlining, um, and encourage people to yeah, inform themselves and possibly put in a submission. Is there anything that you think either the mine or the, the government should be doing at this stage if, if the information doesn't, if the, if the information that they've given the community doesn't quite match what they're planning? Yeah, well, I think that the EES could, well, probably really should be delayed until true indication of what the VHM's intentions are is outlined in the EES. That was farmer and member of Mine Free Mallee Farms, Craig Kennedy. A spokesperson for VHM said the company would not be resubmitting the environmental effects statement for the Goshen project. The spokesperson said the company would be required to undergo a new environmental impact assessment and approval process at another time 
if it decided to go ahead with mining Area 4. VHM will not be permitted to mine anywhere outside of Areas 1 and 3 under the proposed project documented in Goshen Environment Effects Statement and the related mining licence application. Our Goshen mining licence application strictly contains mining activity to the land we proposed to the Department for Planning for approvals. Should the company's exploration work find another economic resource in the future, those future projects would need to undergo community engagement, environmental impact assessment and and approval processes. ABC contacted the Victorian Department of Transport and Planning to ask whether the state government would require VHM to update and resubmit its EES in light of the feasibility study it was undertaking into mining Area 4. The department did not respond to the question but said community members had until the 17th of January to respond to the EES that was on public exhibition. Mine Free Mallee Farms will be holding a community meeting about the proposed mine at the Lalbert Recreation Reserve at 10am on the 11th of January. That report from Elsie Kennedy, interesting one, isn't it? Uh, this The conflict between miners, farmers, and that question as to whether there is perhaps a power imbalance. Do miners have more power than farmers? Uh, interesting. You can get in touch on that matter because there are so many mines being proposed, particularly through Western Victoria and other parts of the state I know as well. Get in touch, 0467 842 722. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Let's return now to a story we covered yesterday about that ongoing dispute between Australia's largest port operator, DP World, and its workers, maritime union workers, overpaying conditions. Lobby group WA Farmers says the solution to that long-running industrial dispute is to fully automate ports right across the country. Trevor Whittington is the Chief Executive of Lobby Group WA Farmers. He says the current dispute will be resolved the same way every other port dispute is resolved in Australia, and he thinks that's got to change. A deal being done which will cost farmers and consumers even more. Um, you know, they will get paid more for working less. That's the, that seems to be the formula after you know, extended strikes. So, you know, it's certainly not the first time there's been a dispute at the ports. What's the long-term solution here, Trevor? Look, the long-term solution, and look, uh, 25 years ago, there was the Chris Corrigan um, exercise to make the ports more efficient, and they got a little bit more efficient for a while, and then they've slipped backwards. There was a push for the Productivity Commission under Morrison to make the ports more efficient, and they've slipped backwards. Ultimately, the solution is to automate the ports like they've done in, you know, 30 or 40 ports around the world. Get the wharfies out of it because we're just lifting boxes off boats and stacking them on the wharf and just, you know, go fully automated, fully robotic. And that's, you know, we've got the technology to do it. We just need to get there fast. And how efficient do those 40-odd ports, automated ports around the world work? They're, they're, the China's building them at the rate of knots. Um, you know, they, out, the new outer harbour port, if it ever gets built, uh, would be perfect for it. It would be at least double the efficiency, you know, 60, 70, 80 containers an hour, you know, fully controlled by, you know, computers and, and uh, robotics and uh, the cranes work with all the, the technology that, we use to run harvesters up and down rows within, you know, a centimetre. There's nothing difficult about this at all, but um, it would at least take this endless round of port disputes that Australia seems to suffer from 
and bring it to an end. Wouldn't it cost an extraordinary amount of money, though, to automate a port? Farmers can afford to put uh, self-steering on their headers. No, it's not expensive at all. Um, It's certainly a lot cheaper than paying a wharfies not thrown up to rosters, which is currently what's happened. Well, I mean, you know, we're talking about taking away jobs here. I mean, surely, you know, people can keep their jobs on the wharf. Uh, The wharf can continue to work. And there must be a solution here. We can come together and actually resolve a dispute. It would be cheaper to pay these people to, to just stay at home and not come to work. And we go robotics because the delays in the supply chain of getting, you know, we need fertiliser and chemicals and parts to come through in the ports for seeding. We need to get out our chilled beef and, um, and, and our, our wine and fresh produce, plus everything else we export that goes on containers. And we're losing jobs and Australia's credibility as a manufacturing, you know, exporting nation uh, to keep some very, very highly paid individuals in jobs. And there's no lack of jobs out there in the mining and agricultural sector at the moment. So we can find jobs for these people, but they can't continue to hold Australia and the farmers and the consumers to ransom. So eventually, governments need to muscle up. Now, Albanese shows no interest. And ultimately, the solution is state governments building ports that we don't need unions, union wharfies, you know, doing this endless rounds of going on strike every couple of years to extract more for doing less. That was Trevor Whittington, Chief Executive of Lobby Group WA Farmers, speaking with Belinda Varischetti. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on Trevor Whittington's proposal there. That essentially, his method for eradicating strike action, industrial action at the ports, is to get rid of the wharfies and replace them with automation. You can get in touch on the text line 0467842722, just as this texter has on our previous story about that conflict between farmers and mineral sands miners. This person says, in mining... Money equals power. Too bad about people trying to earn an honest living from the land they have loved and worked for years to support themselves and communities near and far. 0467 842 722 on the text line if you're quick because we are running out of time. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. A Kiwi shearer has smashed the women's world record for most strong wool ewes shorn in an eight-hour day and now has her sights set on even loftier goals. Catherine Maluli shore 465 ewes in eight hours to beat the previous record, which had just been set, mind you, by 79 sheep and even went past the nine-hour record of 452 ewes. I spoke with her about what she describes as the best day of her decorated shearing career. Yeah, it went really well. I just, I had it in my head that um, it was going to be the best day shearing I've ever had. So when times did get a little bit tough, I just thought, um, a friend of mine said, remember you're living your dream. (laughs) Um, It's a little thing that we shearers say, we're living the dream. (laughs) So yeah, I remembered that. And it got me through. And Kath, the the record you were targeting had it only been set a, a few days before your record attempt, but three hundred and eighty six head was your target, and you sure four sixty five. Yeah. So you absolutely yeah. smashed that that record. Yeah, 
yeah, it was just a personal goal. Always chasing that, yeah, that personal best of your own. Eh? It's, it's um, it's all, it's all for you. At the end of the day, so yeah, I actually I had a bigger goal in mind, uh, but I just I just couldn't do it on on the day. So um, yeah, yeah, I smashed my second goal. <laughs> so what was the original goal? I really I really want to do five hundred just in my lifetime. <laughs> I really I've always wanted to do five hundred on you. So um, we'll get there one day. So you so you've you've smashed the world record, but you you're still not content. Oh no, I am. I am for the day. Yeah, I think it went as well as it as it possibly could could have done. So yeah, I'm really happy. And Kathy, run tallies one seventeen, one seventeen, one sixteen, one sixteen. So is that is that something that you, you pride yourself on that that consistency? Yeah, definitely. Had a good team behind me, keeping me going all day. Eh, and um. Uh, you know, you can just walk away at Smoko and um, and your gear is just going to go mint. You've got no worries. And right from the outset, Catherine, the start of the day, did, did it did it feel like things were flowing for you? And did you did you always think that you were on track to, to cheer a big tally? I definitely knew, like I knew I could do 400. But I guess like I've heard people that have done records before saying, you know, like on the day you'll you'll be surprised at what you do. I guess with the atmosphere and and all of the little things, you know, having the boys talking to you all day and your gear and, you know, the sheep are really good and all of all of the things all coming together. Like you don't you don't get that at a normal day sharing. So I expected that it would be the best day of sharing of my life. And and so the best day of, of your life, of, of a long shearing career, Kath, what what was the feeling when you finally shore that last sheep at the end of the eight hours? Oh, it was the last sort of, actually the last hour, I think, after I got the record. And then, you know, you know that last bit of time is just, it's, it's all on you then kind of thing. Um, that's what it felt like. It, it was just all on me to to set that tally as high as I could. And, yeah, it, gave, it definitely gave me some adrenaline um, to run on and get through the day on. It was actually pretty exciting, that last that last sort of hour, hour quarter. Yeah, it's making my heart race just thinking about it, actually. <laughs> and, and, Kath, just, just reading some reports about about the day, it sounds like some of the sheep weren't particularly cooperative for you. Yeah, they're, I guess, just typical. They've got a bit of Perindale in them, so anyone that knows that breed, yeah, knows what. They're they're a bit spicy, but um, they're beautiful shearing sheep. And and for you, Kath, to to establish yourself as as one of the best shearers in the world, what what's the secret? Is it your technique, your physical fitness, your your, your mental strength? What is it? Yeah, I don't know. There's something inside you, I guess, that pushes you. There's there's something about sharing. Um, <laughs> I think anyone that's that's shown a sheep and continued after that first sheep, there's I don't know, you catch a bug or something, and um, yeah, I, I can't explain it to be honest. And what's the future for you, Kathy? You, 
you're uh, still relatively young. You, have you got more record attempts? Like you mentioned earlier, that, that 500 target. Relatively. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that, that 500 you target. Is that something you're, you're still going to strive toward? Yeah, I think I'd love to do that in my life. I don't know if I've ever said it out loud, but uh, that's, yeah, it's always been my goal. I've always really like enjoyed the challenge of sharing yous. And, Kath, I asked this question to Sasha Bond too when I spoke to her recently, but just can you just explain for us Australians how our New Zealand shearers and the best shearers, the guns, how they're regarded in New Zealand and the high regard that they're, they're held in? Yeah, I feel like it's a bit of an unspoken thing, you know. Like, um, I know some of the most res- the the people that I have the most respect for. If I think hard about it, then they're, they're not they're not big talkers. They're they're just you know head down, ass up, and and they mahi hard, and they're they're really good people, and um and it shows in their mahi, not. Not in their words um, so much. So I just feel so blessed to have had. It's gonna, it's gonna make me emotional. Like um, I feel so blessed to have had people like that, and that all shit helping me achieve this goal. And Kath, clearly your your passion, your love for the industry shines through. Yeah, definitely. I feel like this industry was almost like my saving grace when I was a teenager and didn't know what I wanted to do. And I feel like now that I'm older, I've realised that a lot of people go through that stage, you know, after high school. And it's a difficult, it's just a difficult time, can be, for young people. That was gun Kiwi shearer Catherine Maluli, who now holds the world record for the most strong wool used, Sean, in an eight-hour day by a woman. Hamilton Sheep Market now with Chris Agnew. Thanks, Angus. Hamilton agents yarded 12,000 sheep today, a decrease of 2,000 on last week's offering. Where the quality was very good, with a good mixture of both heavy and medium to lightweight sheep, the majority being crossbred ewes. However, there were a few more merino sheep on offer this week. Now, all weights and grades were available, and most of the relevant processes were present and active, but not all were fully active in a market that was very strong to be dearer by $25 to $30 per head. Overall, classes of sheep. Compared to last week's sale, the general run of mutton, realising between 300 and 350 cents a kilogram cargo's weight, to average between 310 and 330 cents. Crossbred used to 125, the well-covered merino used to 107, and merino weathers making to $95. There were a few pens of crossbred weathers, and they made to 122. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks, Chris. Quickly on the text line before we go, this person says, Angus, the odds of stopping mining are stacked against the farmers. The broke government has already accepted massive exploration payments with more royalties to come. The average mine lasts 30 years. Then there is environmental disaster left with no one accountable. Thanks for that text. Uh, Just about out of time. Remember the website, abc.net.au slash rural. 
Find ABC Rural on Facebook. I'm back in the chair next week. Warwick's still got a few weeks off. Have a great weekend. News time, one o'clock.